We've come to this 2 Corinthians chapter 6 paragraph that begins in verse 11, runs through the first verse of chapter 7. It has to do with separating from unbelievers. It's a very straightforward and helpful passage of Scripture, somewhat well-known to Christians, yet perhaps not very well applied in the life of the church. It's part of a larger series on this chapter, the highs and lows of ministry, dealing with hardship, particular consistent admonition, and the study has yielded for us a clear understanding of what God expects from those who are redeemed. They are regarded as ministers of reconciliation. That's you, a minister of reconciliation. If you're redeemed, your job is to be a minister of reconciliation. And you are God's ambassadors. So I don't think we can come away from this study in this chapter without knowing those two things thoroughly. And as such, because you're both of those things, much could be required by way of hardship, uh, by way of difficult times, by way of sacrifice, and certainly right responses and consistent admonition. So because of your position, these things may be required. Much certainly is required in this passage, as we pointed out numerous times, it's not uh, the poster passage of us making demands on God and naming it and claiming it, but quite the opposite. It's God making demands on those who are his and what he expects. And this passage, really this message, is message 12 of a larger series. And for those of you who are here for the first time, I apologize if you feel like you won't know what's going on. Those other messages are available on our website at bereanjourney.org or on Spotify at the Berean Journey Podcast if you want them. However, today we will go through our text verse by verse, and what we do know is that whenever we do that, whenever you do that, whenever a teacher does that, God is always able to communicate through his written word and accomplish what he wants to accomplish by it. And because the word we teach is God breathed, which is the word inspired, then 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 tells us very clearly that all scripture, so regardless of where you pick it up, all scripture is God breathed. It's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, then, whenever you pick it up, and wherever it is that you pick it up, you will get what you need. And so let's read our passage this morning. And although the topic and example of consistent admonition begins back in verse 11, let's pick up in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, which is where we left off last week. So you're looking in your copy of God's Word, if you would, and we'll read that together and keep that Bible open or that tablet open so that you can follow along as we go to different places to help illustrate and let the Bible explain the Bible. So verse 14 picks up this way. It says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Verse 15. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Verse 16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, 
and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And that's really where the thought ends, I think, as we look at this passage, and so we'll, we'll stop right there. And as we look at this particular text, as we saw last time, that is really brought to life by the words of chapter uh, verse 14, which says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. That, that sets really the entire context for what follows after that. And as Paul gives us an example of consistent admonition, that first admonition is one of five in our passage. And that first one, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And that's immediately followed by a series of five reasons why that admonition is needed to be followed. And so you're going to kind of get that flow, I think, as you look at this now. You realize this, this, this sentence, do not be bound together with unbelievers, turns the passage on. And then it's followed by five reasons why it's imperative that we make sure we follow that command. And it should be enough, of course, without the reasons, because the passage is in the imperative, so it is, do not be bound together with unbelievers. That should be enough, and we should obey it. But as Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit, he gives five motives for obeying it, and each brings the command into sharp distinction, so that we can be very clear how serious it is. So he's calling believers back from the world, and the minister is to follow that example, and to call those they minister to back from the world, making sure, of course, that we're following the command ourselves, with wisdom and with discernment so that we can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, that's you and me doing our thing right now, that's the life we live in the flesh after our redemption. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then later in Galatians 6.14, he says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world marked us beloved. This is such sharp distinction from the modern church in the West. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So do you think Paul understood what it meant to come apart from the world? Do you think he understood don't be bound together with unbelievers? And so he can explain it to us clearly. So we want to make sure as we explain it to other people that we understand and have assimilated that passage ourselves. And that Galatians 2.20 and Galatians 6.14 apply to us in ever-increasing measure. Because that's the separation, see. Paul won't boast in his education. He's not going to boast in his position, his possessions, in his reputation, anything connected to the world. He's not going to boast in that. Everything that was connected to the world by which he may boast has been put to death to him and him to it. So he'd separated himself from those things, and now he's calling the church back from the world. Now, just to set the stage today without going over things that we've already covered, we know that faith in Christ leads to a total transformation of one's entire being. That's clearly what 2 Corinthians 5.17 is describing for us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That sums up Christianity. There are many passages that do that. I've pointed them out to you over and over as we go through. If you could kind of sum up Christianity, some passages do it better than others. This is one of those. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So you can measure your life in that way. How much has the old things begun to pass away and how much have the new things come? 
And to the extent that that is true, you're secure in your walk with the Lord. So what does that passage mean by what it says? Well, when someone becomes a Christian, when they are born again, when they are transformed by faith in Jesus Christ, so any of those ways that describe uh, coming to faith, they enter in to an entirely different sphere from the unredeemed. I don't think you can walk away from that passage and understand anything else. That's what the passage means by what it says. With that transformation then comes different thoughts and comes different values and different standards and different beliefs and different feelings and different principles and different motives and different goals and attitudes and hopes. And we look at life with an entirely different perspective than an unbelieving people do. And that difference is drastic. It is so drastic that fellowship and communion and harmony and participation with unbelievers is bound to be at best superficial. We may share superficially in some common things. We may enjoy a common country, a common community. We may have a, a common family. Uh, we may work at a common job. We may have common hobbies or pastimes. We may agree on natural likes and dislikes. There may be some superficial agreement in those things. And as a footnote, those things where there is some agreement can be the bridge to witnessing, as we have uh, pointed out over and over again in the Be the Church class and in the GOMAD training and in the Way of the Master. You can bridge those gaps by those common things. But when you get down deep inside, the difference is so extreme. In fact, it's not just a difference. It's a stark divergence from where you were before and where the world is. And the believer and the unbeliever are so diametrically opposed to each other at heart that only a superficial relationship is really possible. And those differences are never more clear than in the topic of Jesus. To the believer... Jesus is God, and he is Savior, and he is Lord, and he's Master. In fact, many times when people want, come to me and say, I'm not sure I'm born again, I'll say to them, please describe to me Jesus. Because a believer will be able to do that fairly well. In fact, the longer they do it, the more they'll be able to do it better. And if you just do that in your own mind, if somebody said, describe to me Jesus, you'll begin to say things that are in worship to him and deference to him and understanding and all those kinds of things. So you ask a believer, Jesus, so the believer, Jesus is God, he's Savior, he's Lord, he's Master, he's responded to with the obedience and with deference, he is the object of all love and all due reverence is to him, and, and, and living to the glory of God is everything, promoting the honor of Jesus Christ, that's our supreme duty, we live for that. And for the unbeliever, Jesus may be a man, maybe he's treated with deference, maybe he's treated with indifference, maybe he's treated with disrespect, maybe he's used as profanity, certainly disobeyed, self is everything, the satisfaction and comfort and success of self directs all of life. And just obviously these two are diametrically opposed perspectives of Jesus, just that topic alone. And so it should not be surprising to us that Paul admonishes the church to live apart from the world. And that is the problem Paul's addressing in the church. And it's still a problem in the church. So it's just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. It's a calling back from the life you once lived to the life Christ has called you to. And it's really the most basic and most foundational of all admonitions found in the Bible. And beloved, it underpins nearly every other admonition. And so he moves to this most forceful of commands and he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And it's from the compound verb, heterozoo deo. Heteros is another of a different sort. 
And zugos is a yoke serving to couple two things together. And, and here we looked at last time, it's a term from the negative that directs the yoking of unbelievers and not to do that. Don't be yoked together to pull in a, in a single direction with an unbeliever. There is no possibility for people in these two kingdoms to be bound together in a yoke. So it's a very simple command and has a lot of ripples to extend out. And so this was number five in the highs and lows of, of ministry of admonition and correction, and it is to call people back from the world. And specifically, speaking of yoking, which would certainly be marriage, a business venture, a contract that binds you or yokes you together as equals so that you're pulling along together in some certain direction, and, and that would certainly cover those things. And as a footnote, it may be that calling back from the world and that calling specifically back from yoking together with unbelievers is the greatest challenge that you and I have as a Christian personally and it may be the greatest challenge that you have and the most, the job that you do the most as a minister is calling people back from the world. But it always has to do with the purity of the church. Everything that we see by way of command in the New Testament has to do with the purity of the church. And so it addresses believers entering into a close relationship with unbelievers where the worldview and the priorities and the morality would all be called into question. And then the first two of the five principles that Paul gives us are found immediately and they help us understand the seriousness of the command and that's in the rest of verse 14. Look there if you would with me. And this is how Paul reminds the church of this consistent admonition. He says this, For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So first, what partnership can there be for righteousness and lawlessness? And these are rhetorical questions. They're axioms. They should be easily understood without proof. But it's a, it's a rhetorical question. And what's the answer? None. By righteousness, the apostle really personifies believers, those who have become the righteousness of God, those who have been uh, imputed righteousness through faith in Christ. Lawlessness represents unbelievers, everyone else in the world. Lawlessness. Those are not subject to the law of God, and Romans 8, 7 says they can't be. Now, so that's principle number one. If you're taking notes on the seriousness of the command, the command is do not be yoked together, do not be bound together by with unbelievers. And the first principle in the seriousness of the command the schism is hostile and doesn't admit any common ground. There's no common ground there. That's the first one. The second rhetorical question that should just be an obvious indicator of the wisdom of Paul's admonition is found in that last part of verse 14. It says, what fellowship is there for light with darkness? And again, what's the answer, beloved? None. There's no fellowship with light and darkness. And, and by light, Paul means the Christian who has seen the truth, and by darkness, the person who prefers to live in spiritual oblivion, because men like darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So that's everyone else. Those unredeemed live in darkness. Those unredeemed live in lawlessness. And that's principle number two in the seriousness of the command. True fellowship with darkness is as impossible as it is undesirable. Those things are just obvious truths. They're axiomatic, as we said, which means they don't need, they're self-evident truths. They don't need proof. Paul admonishes them. He corrects them. And then he says, it should be obvious that you can't make opposites the same. And those are opposites. Now, look, let's look at the next three. Look at verse 15, if you would. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Let's stop right there. Let's start with the first one because we can move through these fairly quickly because they follow the same pattern as the first two. And, and we know uh, the purpose for these principles. Uh, they are just principles that show rhetorical answer, that there isn't any harmony, but they have some substance to them, so we'll take some time to take a look at them. So the first one, uh, the third one is this, oh, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? And what's the answer? 
And I'm just asking you an obvious question, right? None. None. Okay, and Belial is a Hebrew term. It's transliterated by Paul into the Greek, and it gets carried right into the English version pretty much unmolested. So it just stays right. You've got a Hebrew word, and it comes right into the Greek, and it stays in the English pretty much the same way. It's a compound noun. It's belly, and, and that is without or not, and ya'al, which is profit or set forward or good. So the idea is without profit, not set forward, not good or no good. So worthless, good for nothing, unprofitable, all of that, that's what the word means. So what then harmony has Christ with Belial? Now, and here it's used, and you can see there in your copy of God's word, as a proper noun as opposed to an adjective. And that's important. We're going to point out why right now. As a, as a, as an adjective in 1 Samuel 2.12, we get the word, and here's what it says. And this is the Bible describing Eli, the high priest's sons. And you perhaps remember how they're described. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. So in some, in some, uh, translations of the Bible, it says sons of Belial. So that's worthless men is the translation of sons of Belial. It just means they are what? They were, are without profit. They're not to be set forward. They're not good. So Eli's sons were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And we know that they were really bad. And we see a description later about how uh, wicked they were. And then in 1 Kings 2, 21, 13, we see the word as it relates to Ahab and Jezebel's plot to take the field that didn't belong to them. Do you remember that? So Naboth owns a field. Ahab wants it. And he's throwing a fit like a baby. And Jezebel says, hey, well, just call him over, you know, accuse him falsely, and, uh, and then we'll kill him and you can have the field. And so uh, it describes it this way. It says, then t the two worthless men. So these are the guys that they said, hey, tell a lie about Naboth so we can have the field. And so it describes them. So the two worthless men, that's the sons of Belial, came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. There's the two lies. So they took him, out, took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And so, so that is an adjective. We could probably describe, use that to describe our governor currently. Uh, because it's used as a proper noun here in 2 Corinthians 6, it's almost certainly standing for Satan. And because it's only used here in all the New Testament as a proper noun. So I think we can say that because Satan is the father of all those, uh, that this adjective would describe him. So in the proper noun, we're, we're referring to the one who's the father of all that stuff, all the worthlessness, all the lies, all the foolishness, all the, you know, all of that. Okay. That's who they, that's who we're describing. I think, I think it's, it's easy enough to make that connection if it's written with the capital. So. When Jesus is addressing the Pharisees in John 8, 44, he says this. He says uh, to them as they claim that God is their father, and they're having this big argument with Jesus, and they won't accept Jesus, and, he, and they say, well, God's our father. And he says this. He says, you are of your father, the devil. So he just cuts right to the chase. They, they, were, they had the fruit of that father, and so he just says, that's your father. I'm not, you know, God's not your father. And so he says, you're your father, the devil, and you want to do what the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. So that describes the two previous illustrations. We just, we had a liar, right? And we had a murderer. And so he is a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. So, the adversary of Christ, representing the opposite of everything Jesus stands for, is in this statement. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Uh, and, and harmony is an interesting word. 
symphonesis, that's where we get our word symphony, is from this word, and it literally means agreement. So when you go to a symphony, you have a whole a bunch of instruments playing in agreement, right? They're all in harmony with one another, and they sound wonderful, and if they don't, then you, it's, it's, it's hard on your ears. But the idea there is what harmony, what symphonesis has Christ with Belial, literally agreement, or do they play in harmony with one another, and what's the answer to that? No. Right? It, it, it's obvious. It doesn't need any proof. Paul's carried along here to use the words harmony and Belial, perhaps to point out that Satan has temporary dominion over the world, and he lives and the lives of the unredeemed. And so he lives and carries out that temporary dominion over the world right now. And even though the world and the unredeemed may not and likely don't even know it, that they're under that they are underneath the control of Satan himself. See, it's true nonetheless. And believers must be aware of it so they'll be come apart from the unredeemed and not be bound together. Now, that should be sufficient, wouldn't you say? What harmony has Christ with Belial? And what is that illustrating? Don't be bound together in a yoke with unbelievers. Because it's analogous to saying there's harmony between Christ and the temporary dominion uh, who's over the dominion of this world. Now, let's look at the next one. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And the words in common just continue to repeat the topic Paul is illustrating. And the fact that he does it five different ways should drive home the seriousness of the command to not be bound together with unbelievers because it's easy for us to excuse it, isn't it? And maybe you're doing that now or you did it last week. You're like, well, it's not really that big a deal. And I, my encouragement to you is, regardless of whether you perceive it at this point to be a big deal, by the time we get done today, you will. And the word usually here refers to possessing or sharing an inheritance. That's what it means in common. So in common, you possess an inheritance with someone else. And so the, the fourth rhetorical question is, what do we share or possess in common with an unbeliever? And what's the answer? Nothing. There's no inheritance in common with an unbeliever and a believer. Do we have a shared inheritance in the kingdom of God with an unbeliever? No. Do we have a share in the blessings that come from God with an unbeliever? No, neither now nor in the future. As Jesus spoke to his disciples, he encourages them in the middle of a difficult life, a life of subjection under the Roman Empire and, and the false teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So who who are is he describing there? Are those unredeemed? Of course not. That These are fruits of the Spirit. These are what comes as a result of salvation in Christ and becoming more Christ-like. These things become clear in your life. And then the Lord says, these are the futures for those people who have come to know me, and now these things are manifested. And the verse 11 says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So there's the two kingdoms, right? And diametrically opposed to each other right there. There's those who are Christ's and those who are not, and they're persecuting those who are Christ. And we see that going on constantly, don't we, around the world. Blessed are you, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So do we share in some inheritance with unbelievers? No. As a matter of fact, it's exclusively set aside for those who display the fruit of being born again. See? In other words, don't worry, there's a special inheritance for you, and it's not a universal inheritance, it's just for you, and that's principle number four on the seriousness of the command. There's no commonality in the things that matter. There's no commonality at all, and certainly no share in any kind of inheritance. And it's a principle that helps lend credence and weight to the first command that's in the imperative, don't be bound together with unbelievers. Paul says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then he follows up to the church at Colossae and says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the, that's our word, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And the only sharing, the only commonality who has the only commonality is with the saints. Only they have an inheritance and light, and you share in that, but there's no commonality for those who are not redeemed, see? And so stay away from bound, being bound together as in a yoke. And then verse 16, as if commonality between Jesus and Satan wasn't enough to get the church's attention, Paul says this, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And that word agreement has to do with common ground, it's the word that the Greeks would understand as applying to a voting situation. So you and I vote similarly. We have common ground. We think the same way and kind of have the same perspective of things. That's how that would be applied. What common ground, what common outlook, if you will, if you will, does the temple of the living God have with false gods? And the obvious answer to this principle to help us understand the serious nature of being yoked together with unbelievers is what? None. None. There's no common ground. And we have we've looked at the prophet Jeremiah numerous times during this study in the highs and lows of ministry dealing with hardship because he had such a hard ministry. And idolatry was a huge issue, the worship of something besides the true God. It's still a huge issue now. I mean, it isn't the same things, but it is things nonetheless. But here... I think we get the Lord's perspective in Jeremiah in verse 33 of Jeremiah 32. He says this, he says, he says, they have turned their back to me. I talk about Israel. They have turned their back to me and not their face. So I taught them teaching again and again. They would not listen and receive instruction, but they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. And what's a detestable thing? Well, that's an image of anything that's created, something that sits there and, and, and receives worship as opposed to the Lord receiving worship. So detestable thing is any of those things. It's the things that you would throw out, things you wouldn't want to look at, things that smell, garbage, rancid things. That's how the Lord describes things put in the way of worship for him, directed to him. So he says to Jeremiah, so I'm saying this to illustrate this fifth principle, I think, is carries the most weight, even though each one of them is certainly strong. This one, I think, it becomes anathema to us if you realize how the Lord looks at being bound together with an unbeliever in some kind of contract issue. But I think the most literal example of the Lord's feelings concerning idol worship and its inevitable consequences is found in Ezekiel 8. And I'd like you to turn there. Will you turn to Ezekiel chapter 8? 
So go to Psalms. If you open your Bible, typically it'll open to Psalms. Go seven books to the right. If you're using your digital tablet, you've got it already. But if you're in your, if you're an actual book, so you go to Psalms, you turn right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then boom, Ezekiel. Okay? And that's where you'll be. So just kind of flip over there. Ezekiel chapter 8. And verse 4 is where we're going to pick up. And so Ezekiel then is another of the prophets that had such a difficult ministry. And he's in exile with many who have been carried off already to Babylon. Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet. But he's in exile. The Lord calls him to ministry. And we've looked at it before. Uh, to go to the sons of Israel, tell them things they won't listen to, and take all their abuse. He says, listen, they won't listen to you. I'm going to tell you what to say. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to despise you and reject you, but you still go and say what I tell them to tell you to say anyway. And so he goes and, and, and God carries him to Jerusalem in a vision in the temple. And then we pick up the narrative right here in verse four. And I'll put it on the screen as well so you can kind of stay with me. Verse four. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw on the plain. So this wonderful, glorious, Shekinah kind of glory of God with all this marvelous stuff connected to it. You can read that on your own if you'd like. Just a few uh, chapters earlier. And then he said to me, so Ezekiel is there in a vision and the Lord in his Shekinah glory is speaking from the Shekinah glory and says to Ezekiel, son of man, raise your eyes now towards the north. So I raised my eyes towards the north and behold to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. Now that's another way that the Lord describes things being set up that receive worship besides him. He calls them idols of jealousy. Why? Because he's a jealous God and he's worthy of all worship and he doesn't share it with anybody. And it should have been a heads up, you know, that's, it made it in the top 10 of God's commands for everybody. Okay. And so it's in the top 10. This is what they're doing. He calls it an idol of jealousy and, and they, it's right at the entrance. Uh, to the altar gate, there's this idol of jealousy so that they're receive, they're giving worship to a false god. And then verse 6, it says, And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary. In other words, you just drive me, drive me out. Why would I want to stay? Right? And so, now look at the next one. But yet you will see still greater abominations. Verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered, and I looked, and behold, every form of creeping thing and beast and detestable thing with all the idols at the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. So in the in the outer court, not in the inner court, not where the Holy of Holies is, but in the outer court, here's all these things carved on the wall of the temple. And you can see where I'm going with this, okay? So it's asking, so what common ground is there between God and an idol? And so we're looking to see what those thoughts are of the Lord concerning those things. And this is, in my opinion, the saddest passage in all of the, all of the Old Testament. And you'll see, uh, if you read through, we won't read all the way to the end, but if you read through the end, you'll see why I said that. So, standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Then verse 13. 
And he said to me, yet you will still see greater abominations which they are committing. In verse 14, then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, do you see this set of man? Yet you will still see greater abominations than these. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward towards the sun. Verse 17, And he said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they're putting the twig to their nose. In other words, uh, the equivalent of telling God to take a hike. Not really interested. The women are weeping for the, for the winter where everything dies and weeping for Tammuz, who's the spring, who, who, who's the god of spring to bring everything back to life. And the men are, are bowing down towards the sun. And, and so that's perhaps the saddest passage in all the Old Testament when, the, and the Shekinah glory departs from the temple there. It says he comes out of the Holy of Holies and he goes up, uh, to the pillar and he goes on up to the gate and then he, he leaves and he never, he never comes back to inhabit the temple. And principle number five, as you think about the seriousness of the command, Ezekiel 8 tells us what kind of compatibility the Shekinah glory of God has with idol worship. And what is the answer? None. He departed. And he departed never to return to the temple. And the seriousness of that cannot be diminished, beloved. Because... You're the temple now. And those two illustrations are extremely serious, just, just obviously. But Paul, out of, out of uh, Jeremiah 32 and out of Ezekiel 8. But Paul says, as he's giving the principles behind the imperative not to be yoked together with unbelievers, he saves this one for last. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And the seriousness of it, again, cannot be diminished. Someone might say, well, what's the big deal with partnering, partnering up with an unbeliever? And the answer is clear if we understand any of those passages that we just read. And some will say, well, yeah, but the temple of God isn't around anymore, right? And that's a correct statement. The most recent temple has been destroyed for 2,000 years. And Paul anticipates this subjection. But not only is the illustration still relevant, the, the situation is much more dire now when we disobey this command because 2 Corinthians 6.16, look there at the rest of that, for what? We are the temple of the living God. And I don't think the intent could be any more clear than it is. When a believer is yoked together with an unbeliever, it is the same seriousness of offense that we see in every other place. Why? Well, let's explain that a little bit. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is the unredeemed world. They deliberately suppress the truth of God and his right to be worshipped and glorified. They deliberately do this. This is the unredeemed world. One of my sons and I just had a long conversation on the way home from someplace uh, just a couple days ago about this. What's the seriousness of this? What, what is actually the world's offense? And why are there so many 
cults and why are there so many false religions? Well, it's not everybody weeding through the false religions to finally find the true one. Now, as you witness, you're helping them see the true one. But the scripture says very clearly, the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because they what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because verse 19, so they, they deliberately suppress the truth of God and his right to be worshiped and glorified. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. This is the truth of every single person who's ever lived on the face of the earth. It's a blanket statement. It applies to everybody. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. Basically, the unredeemed are sufficiently aware of the personality of the creator, and they know something of his attributes. Every single person who's ever lived. Regardless of what they might say, it doesn't matter how they may respond. The truth of the matter is that every person who's ever lived knows something about God and something about his attributes. In verse 20 says this, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, so in case somebody says, no, that can't be true. You know, what's known about God can't be evident with everybody. God made it evident. Can't be. And so he explains it. For since the creation of the world, so that goes back to the beginning of time as we understand it, his invisible attributes, and then it gives some examples, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without what? Regardless of what people may say, how they may have embraced a, a, a wicked worldview, a humanistic worldview, regardless of where they stand on a bunch of the issues, regardless of where they plead ignorance or not, the fact of the matter is what? Since the creation of the world, some things have been clear. His God's eternal power and his divine nature are clear. How? By what has been made and that by itself make men without any excuse. Okay? In other words, then... This next act is a deliberate sin. This is the issue, okay, as we get down to it. As we think about what, what common ground has God with idols, we think what's the big deal here with the whole thing? They're just, they, they've lost, they're lost, they don't know what they're supposed to worship, and so they're just worshiping these false things until they find, they weed through all of them and find the true one. That's not it. That's not the issue. The issue is they already knew that God existed by what's been made, and they knew something of his attributes, and then they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And here's the deliberate act, okay? For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, they departed from the truth, but the vacuum didn't stay a vacuum long. What got sucked in there? Every wicked, evil thing that could be sucked in there. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So that, that really, that, those, that sentence just describes the verbiage of every person who's ever lived to a greater or a lesser extent. This is the defense of a hedonistic lifestyle. Okay. This is, this is our, this is our democratic representatives. Most of the presidential candidates on the democratic side. This is the nonsense that comes out of their mouth. This is it. Futile speculations and foolish hearts that are darkened in wickedness. 
professing to be wise. If that doesn't describe them, I don't know who does. What does? They became what? Fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of, here it is, corruptible man or birds or four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So what are they doing? It's a deliberate sin, isn't it? Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And now what are they doing? They're worshiping something besides the one true God. And what's that called? Idolatry. And according to the next part of 2 Corinthians 6.16, what are you? The temple of the living God. So mark this, beloved. If, if idolatry was a grievous sin, and the saddest of all the written history of Israel was the narrative describing what was going on within the temple at Jerusalem during Ezekiel's time, it's easy to see Paul's connection here. Mark this. The believer joined in a yoke to non-believer is analogous again to idolatry in the Jerusalem temple. And there's really no other way to understand that statement. That's the only reason he could have given as a principle for obeying the imperative than to make that analogous. So when people say, well, what's the big deal? You know, marrying an unsafe person. What's the big deal, you know, of, of starting a business with an unredeemed person? What's the big deal of entering some kind of contractual relationship where you're supposed to pull together? What's the big deal? Well, I, I see five big deals. And the fifth one is a huge deal. If we understand how God looks at that at all, and then we understand Paul making the connection here, that's a huge deal. So 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, For we are the temple of the living God. Now, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.17 clarifies this simple yet profound statement as, as it addresses our oneness with Christ at salvation. And it gives us really the bigger picture as God sees us and says, you know, and let's look here briefly because I think this is a great illustration. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So that's you. You're one with him. You've been placed in his circumcision. You've been placed in his death. You've been placed in his burial. You've been placed in his resurrection. That, that's you. That's positionally your position. Okay. You died with Christ. Uh, we died with Christ. We rose with Christ. We ascend with Christ. See, we reign with Christ. That's your position, your reality. And so Paul says, now that you know all of that, why would you ever drag him into these relationships you're having? And in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, it's immoral relationships with the body physically, but it's the exact same language and the same reasoning. You are the temple of the living God. So it harkens back. Here it doesn't actually describe the temple as we saw just a minute ago, but it has to have knowledge of the temple, right? And how God thinks about idolatry and how God thinks about wickedness inside his temple, you have to have some knowledge of that to understand this passage. So we died with Christ, we rose with Christ, we ascend with Christ, we reign with Christ, and now that you know all that, why would you ever drag him into these relationships you're having? And the same thing applies to our passage. See, And if that's been happening, and those habits and baggage from the former life are really encroaching, if the culture is salting the church, instead of the church salting the culture, and yoking ourselves together with unbelievers puts us in fellowship with those who worship something besides the one true God. It puts us in a place where we're trying to live in harmony with the spirit of God and the spirit of the sons of disobedience at the exact same time. See? The sons of Belial and the one who leads them. See, And that's what 1 Corinthians 6.19 really says. Do you not know that your body is the temple of of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Don't you know this? This is common knowledge. 
It's the same issue that we're currently dealing with. What's the big deal of yoking together with unbelievers? Well, the same reason you don't participate in immorality with your body. The same reason that you need to be careful how you build and with what materials, because you're a temple, block by block, being built into a holy house, right? We talked about that months ago. So what's the issue here? The believer's body is the home of the Holy Spirit. And Paul starts with this phrase, do you not know, quite often. This is, in other words, common knowledge. Surely you know this. How can you not know this? You can read it that way. You know, I was with you 18 months. Apollos has been with you. Some of you came from Peter. Some came under the teaching of Jesus. And you don't know this? Surely you know this. So Paul just categorically says in in our passage in 2 Corinthians 6.16, for we are the temple of the living God. He resides in your body. He just assumes this common knowledge. This is the truth about you, see? And again, very, very practical and obvious reason, this time to avoid trying to create some common ground, some agreement between those who worship the created thing, willingly, as we saw, in rebellion to the knowledge they have of the true God, and you, his temple. And then in the last part of 2 Corinthians 6.16, it says this, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and and they shall be my people. So to drive the point home in this last part, Paul pulls a promise to Israel as they're setting up the tabernacle. So this is a promise spoken a thousand years nearly before this happens, more, a little bit more than a thousand years. He pulls this promise to Israel. He pulls it forward. They're setting up the tabernacle. God says this to Israel. I will dwell with them, walk among them, and I will be their God. Thou shalt be my people. And he brings it forward and he says, that was a shadow. The tabernacle and the temple. That was a shadow. And this is the reality. See, in the fullest sense, it's said to every follower of Jesus. See, for in the fullest sense, there is fellowship and worship in the most intimate of settings right inside your physical body, which is why in 1 Corinthians 16 or 6, 17, he says, don't have, don't, don't participate in immorality. You're, you're, there's worship right there in your body. The Holy Spirit is present there like he was present in the tabernacle of old. And then you move right into our passage. Don't bind together as in a yoke with unbelievers. Why? Because there's worship there right in your body. You are the temple of God and he lives there in you. See, There's worship and fellowship in the most intimate of settings right inside your body. You didn't persuade the Holy Spirit. You didn't earn the Holy Spirit. You didn't find the Holy Spirit and try to get him in there. He was given as a gift, and it's the reality of your life. And again, Paul's point is clear. He's made it numerous ways, so we must make it again. Are they going to take the temple of the Holy Spirit and join it together with idolaters? And beloved, that's the issue. And it it must be important because Paul has illustrated this command five different ways. And the last one's just so stark. And if it's put that way, the answer has to be no, no, no. No one wants to do that, see? It's just so sad. Remember who you are and who lives in you and and who you are joined to. And then he comes right down to it. Paul says, remember the end of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He says, and he reminds the church again, he says, that you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price. What does he mean by that statement? The believer's body is what? The believer's body is owned by the Lord. Your body is owned by the Lord. 
My body is owned by the Lord. That is the reality of, you, of your relationship to Christ. See, In 1 Peter 1.14, he talks about the body and he says this. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance before you came to faith. Don't, don't be conformed. Don't be stamped in that image again. But like the one, the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy for I'm holy. In other words, you're already positionally holy because he's called you and declared you holy and imputed righteousness to you. You're already positionally holy. So Peter says, be holy in practice. And that's always the issue, isn't it? We're positionally holy, and practical holiness is what we work on with the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, see? And that's appropriate for someone whose body is host to the Holy Spirit of God. And in verse 17, he says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, in other words, he's not swayed one way or another. He knows what the work is, and he judges impartially. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited by your forefathers and from your forefathers, verse 19, but with, pre with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So he judges each one's work. You belong to him. He bought you. What was the price he paid? His blood. Is there anything that describes salvation any more clearly than that? Your position, his position. After all these other things, Paul ends with this. That body of yours, if you're a believer, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God, and he's seen fit to come and dwell in it. Wow. And that is your position, and you are the temple, and that's the fulfillment of the shadow of everything that came before. So he says, listen, therefore, glorify God in your what? In your body. And what does that include? Not being joined together with unbelievers in a yoke. Not being immoral in your actions. Why? Because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. To be holy like he called, the one who called you is holy. For he says, be holy because I'm holy. And he's made you holy and he wants you practically holy. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God. That's it. What should you do with your body? Well, glorify God with it. Praise God with it. Make his attributes clear. Make it a temple of worship. That's what your body's for. Make it a temple of worship, see? And that's a great thought, isn't it? The Lord is there. That's your position. Make your body a temple of worship. And don't do the things he in the imperative he says, don't do. Why? Because you're corrupting this temple, just like they did of old. And God thinks the same thing about it, see? And our passage today really moves into verse 17 and says nearly the same thing. And we'll look at that next week, Lord willing. But listen to the language of it. And we're going to close with this. Do you, do you think the Lord changed his mind about idolatry from Ezekiel or Jeremiah? Let's read ahead. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, 17, if you would. We'll just read ahead and then we'll close. Just kind of foreshadow what we'll look at next week, Lord willing. So again, he's pulling passages from the shadow time to the fulfillment, okay? And he says this, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Now, when he's talking to Israel, who's he talking about them coming out from? All the nations that are around them and all the worship that they do and everything that they do that, that, that is the reason why they were cast out, shedding innocent blood and, and, and giving their kids up to Molech and, and uh, worshiping Tammuz and, and swinging censers for all the crawling things on the earth and bowing down towards the sun and all the things we already talked about, right? And so he says to them back here in the shadow, come out from among them and from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And what is he talking about now? So he moves it right into the present, doesn't he? And it's just as relative, uh, relevant as it was then, see? 
Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Separate from what? Separate from the world. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. Why? There's no harmony there, right? There's no sympathy between Christ and Belial. There's, there's no common ground between a believer and unbeliever. Come out from their midst and be separate. Now, you have to live in the world, right? And when we work hard, we adorn the gospel, and, and you have to you know, work hard to supply for the needs of your family. Look, we're, we're, not, we're not discounting any of that. We're not taking any of that offline. That's the truth. What? But just be separate. And there's some things you can't do in the world, and that requires great discernment as you do your thing. See? You want to make sure you're not taking this temple, which is supposed to be the, this worship place where we can adore the Lord right in our own body, and join in together with things that the Lord says don't do. These are non-negotiables. See? Lord has the same idea about idolatry as he did in Ezekiel and Jeremiah's time. That hasn't changed one bit. Just the location of the worship has changed. See? Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I'll welcome you. And, and we see two more commands there, admonitions, we're going to look at next week because there are five total here in the passage. We want to make sure we cover each of them. But obviously the command from verse 14 is in the imperative. And God is just as serious about being separate from the world as he's always been. And that doesn't surprise us, does it? If he's grieved over the practices of the sons of Israel in the temple built with hands, how much more should the true shrine Christ's body, the church, be free from contamination? That's the issue. That's the issue. The cumulative effect of these principles, beloved, if, if you kind of get the feel of it like I did this week, that's, the cumulative effect is staggering. How serious is it? Well, a lot more serious, I think, than the modern church perhaps would, lend, as we look at, at their activity, would lend us to believe. The Christian is righteousness and light and a partner with Christ. And he does believe and he's the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. And the non-believer is in a state of rebellion. He's spiritually blind. He's dominated by the evil one. He doesn't believe the good news, should he even hear it. Nor does he trust Christ. And he has willfully suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and worshipped the created thing rather than the creator. Given a Corinthian-type situation, if you kind of take it right to uh, the text and, and the context here of this verse... Not only is they, are they joining together with unbelievers and not being separate from the world, they're probably a functioning idolater they're going to the temple. And I would say not that our current culture isn't. They are. Just different things have replaced the ancient things. And so it follows that saint and sinner have no bonded relationship, right? Because there are no vital common interests, no agreement about things that matter, no mutual foundation for life in the world, and no share together in what's coming in the future for each. So there's the five principles that back up the one imperative that is very common knowledge, I think, to the church. If we know any passages in Second Corinthians, we probably know that one. But that's how serious it is. So let's bow in prayer, ask the Lord for discernment as we apply. Uh, the things, what the Bible says, what it means by what it says, how does that apply to us? Lord, we thank you today for opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the blessing it is to be together in worship. We're grateful for uh, the, the work that we do uh, for the kingdom, for their desire to see the kingdom advance, for the sacrifice and the giving and the, and the worship and the service that, that go along with being one of those called by your name. Thank you for all that we're, we're doing that. Thank you for the faithfulness and, and sacrifice 
uh, that they put into it. And Lord, thank you for a church that desires to know your word and is content to hear it and not be entertained, but instead to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be corrected, to be uh, informed, and then to go out and do what we understand you said clearly for us to do and not do the things you said for us not to do. Father, I pray that you'll bless our ministry, our outreach, show us the directions to go that we need to go that we aren't currently doing, and strengthen those things that we are doing. I pray, Father, that bring glory to your name. And for us individually, Father, as we look at these mandates and uh, this particular, this imperative uh, from you, and then the five reasons why we don't do it, help the seriousness of that be impressed upon us, that we might be able to conduct ourselves in such a way as we walk on the earth that you may be able to bless us and not be in a place where you have to chasten us. Father, I pray that we'll be good test, uh, good testimony as we go out, just to have opportunity, count us worthy to witness for your sake. Help us to be clear, bad news and good news. And Lord, I pray that you'll give us fruit from that labor. Thank you for the March for Life this last week. Thank you for the wonderful testimony it was in Washington. I pray uh, there are many, and thank you for the many ears that hear that. And I pray there'll be many more that hear it and see the light and the truth because they live in darkness and the veil is over their face and it can't be removed by anything we do. Only you can do that. But help us have a good testimony, faithfully proclaiming the good news until we see you. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.